Welcome to the Soho Playhouse podcast. I'm Darren Lee Cole. This is a show about off-Broadway theater and how it serves the cultural landscapes of New York City, the United States, and the world. We'll chat with the incredible creators and influencers of this unique art form. So now, come with me backstage. Todd Robbins' Honk Quest is the first live show staged at Soho Playhouse since the COVID-19 pandemic closed most of the world in March of last year. The ghoulishly charming Todd Robbins is recognizable to New Yorkers, having been a mainstay on Coney Island for the past several decades. He also has a rich career as a theater and television performer. Todd starred in the off-Broadway show Play Dead, creating a gleefully grotesque orgy of death and fright with legendary Las Vegas magician Teller. Now, consider the home of Soho Playhouse, a building that has been around for nearly 200 years. Many dark events have occurred over those years, and many people who had a connection with the building are now dead. In Honk Quest, Todd will use arcane, paranormal ghost hunting techniques to make contact with several spirits known to roam Soho Playhouse. So please, enjoy my recent conversation with Todd Robbins. Hi, Todd. Hi, Darren. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, I, I would just like to say, I thought your introduction to me was going to be, every once in a while, a great performer comes along. <laughs> and while we're waiting, here's Todd Robbins. I thought that's what you were going to say. Oh, I, I was worried you were going to go into, what was it, um, that great intro for uh, uh, that Schneider does in All That Jazz. A, a true humanitarian, a great performer. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> and it's quite. Ben Vereen, right, yeah, in, in yeah. that case. So, okay, let's get this out of the way. Sure. Do you believe in ghosts? I believe there's something out there. I believe in mystery. I believe in the unknown, and that's why we're doing this show. Because when it comes to mysteries, uh, people don't really like mystery. They say they do, but they don't. What they like are answers. I think it is in our DNA to solve, uh, look at something, not understand it, and try to figure it out, whether it's going to help us or kill us. Uh, and that goes back to the earliest that's days. primal as Yeah, exactly. So therefore, when presented with a mystery, and as I say on the top of the show, is there any greater mystery than death? Uh, that I don't think there is. Uh, people will want an answer. And that's where... Folly comes in because we don't really have a capacity to answer. Is there anything that follows? Well, think about that. Everything in the human construct has boundaries yeah. of some sort. And speaking to what you just said, yeah. has an achievable or intellectualized beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. Uh, except for the concept of infinity. Mm-hmm. And there are people on both sides of the argument that grab on to uh, answers, though they don't really have the capacity to come forth with, with... What they come forth with is truth, and people have... There is no such thing as truth, I believe. There is fact and there is opinion. 
that are then misnamed truth. Fact doesn't need anyone's help. It exists. You look at it. It is what it is, uh, despite what some politicians will tell us. There is truth, and that's it. And then there's opinion, which is you look at facts, and then you come up with your interpretation of it and say that is truth. Um, So having stated this, now the question for anyone listening to this is, what I just said, is it fact or is it opinion? Right. So, so, uh, and circling back into the show yes. is the conceit of the show that what you do is factual. What you do, I won't put words in your mouth, but what's the conceit of the show? Is this real? Is this entertainment? You had good words about entertaining and yeah, entertainment. Yeah, it's. I believe what we're doing here is entertaining, but I'm not certain it's entertainment. I'm not exactly certain what this show is, which is, of course, is not a, a good marketing plan. When you say, <laughs> I, I don't know what it is, uh, it is uh, a very in kind of intriguing. No one has done anything like this. So there have been people who've done theatrical seances. There are certainly people uh, that will say what they're doing is real when they speak to the dead. Uh, and it is my belief that those people do speak to the dead, but I'm not sure the dead speak back to them. <laughs> so uh, with this, and this ties into, and though I don't get into the history, because we have 75 minutes to spend together in this loft, in this wonderful 200-year-old building that has a lovely dark history, uh, through the years, and a number of ghost stories attached to it, uh, spectral entities that have been encountered by staff members through the years. And uh, so we kind of bring those up early on, and I ask people if, if they've had an encounter, and then we kind of delve into what this is and why this is. Why, why, do you, yeah. Not that there's a way to track it exact science, but what's your impression of what percent of people uh, respond that they have had encounter uh if i think there was a, a survey a while back uh and i don't have you know my phone to google this but there was a, the people that believe in paranormal and have had an encounter it's it's like 70 percent. it's a very high percentage now is it just my impression but that that feels to me like it's growing I think it is. There's a great deal of uncertainty in our world, of course, and who, again, what, what I talk about forces and influences uh, in the show and how they affect us, and then we play with them uh, during the, the course of it, and remarkable results come forth. What they are, again, who knows? But we're tapping into a history here. This, this is what I refer to, what we're doing here, as retro-paranormal exploration. And what that means... Retro-paranormal... Yeah, I coined that phrase, retro-paranormal. It's mine. You can't have it. Copyright. I don't even want it. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it, it suits very much because, you know, when you say paranormal or supernatural, and especially when you bring up the term ghost hunting... It, yeah, it, rationalists can easily check out, right? Yeah, yeah. And it also brings up certain, uh, certain brands when you say ghost hunting. You see all the TV shows and people mm-hmm. running around... Uh, in black turtlenecks and and and, uh, and sophisticated yeah. equipment, yeah, and running around and they beep and they get all wigged out and say, "Oh, look, that thing beeped." Therefore, someone is here, or, or there's kind of sort of a sound that, if you listen to it, it kind of says, "Sort of maybe get out." And that's all fine. That's all good. Uh, and yet, and forgive my candidness, and this is going to piss off some people, that there's never been a device 
because much of the devices, many of the devices uh, that are being used by the ghost hunters on TV were created for other purposes, uh, electronic mm. magnetic field uh, uh, detectors and things like that. that. Even things as basic as sonar. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were created for other purposes and have been repurposed. And that's why whatever, quote unquote, evidence is brought forth has to be manipulated and interpreted. Uh, so what we're doing is we're reaching back to the earliest days of spiritualism uh, in America here, though, you know, the references to speaking with the spirits in the Bible, it goes back thousands of years. But the modern spiritualist movement began in 1848 in upstate New York, a little town called Hydesville, where two young girls heard knocking sounds in their farmhouse and played a little game of do as I do. They'd clap their hands two times and there'd be two raps coming forth. And they'd do three and three, and they would do an irregular rhythm, and it would match it. And then they say, you know, can you speak to us? Rap three times for yes, why yes, two times for no, and it went three raps. And they held a conversation with this entity, and turned out they called him Mr. Splitfoot, and that he had been a peddler who had come to the house decades before, with previous owners, several previous owners, and the owners uh, murdered him and took his money and buried his body in the basement. And who, it, who documented this? Well, this what happened was it, it took off like wildfire because it wigged out their mother. Uh, their father was a very stoic man. and, and So uh, we're talking about 200 years after Salem and yeah, yeah. that. Bit, and, bit and, of business. and so there was, you know, what is going on here? Mm-hmm. And she started talking to neighbors about it, telling them. And then they told neighbors. And before you know it, there was a line down the road of people saying, can you contact my dead aunt Martha? I really miss her. And she was taken with the smallpox uh, you know, plague that happened several years ago. And I, I, can you contact her? Can you reach out, have Mr. Splitfoot? Reach. And so all of a sudden, this whole new religion that some looked at as possibly a new science because it was the 1800s and there were so many developments uh, and things, just electricity hadn't really been uh, harnessed at that time. Uh, right. And, and so there were so many scientific developments that many people thought that maybe this was a science and there were many scientists that examined it. I'm sure traditional uh, church and values... Uh, Kicked up a, a scream about such a thing. Some did, some did, and then others, like the, the Quakers and some of the newer religions that, that sprung up uh, in the United States, were like, well, this might be an extension of what we're doing, so we're not going to cast uh, aspersions upon it. Um, and yeah, there, and it be, because of the sensational nature of it, uh, it took off. And with it came a lot of fraud a lot of fraud people well, going okay how can we make a rapping sound like the girls did and uh and is that really actually the precursor of the televangelist oh, as we know it completely and the, i mean in the 173 years that uh since then it is just taken off like i say the the life expectancy in 1848 was like 37 years uh and so and the infant mortality rate was huge and so People had a relationship with death. It was part of their life. They had experienced it firsthand, close up. And so it was on their minds. And the idea that death was not the end, that theme, was very powerful. 
So you had thousands upon thousands of people who became mediums almost overnight and yeah. could do this. And it became an industry so that, oh, you know, you can get raps, but I, what I can do is I can channel the dead and bring forth a message through what I call automatic writing. And like, oh, well, I'll see that and I'll take school slates and we'll put a piece of chalk and I can bring the dead forth and they will write a message on, oh, yeah? Well, I'll see that. And not only will they write a message, but you can actually see them. And it just got up and up and up and, and became this major industry that was rife with fraud. You know what? That's the perfect way to pause. And now let's uh, rewind yes. on Todd. Okay. Because I'm not just saying this. I think you might be the ideal candidate or person given your background, to do what you're doing. And, and it gets all involved in, in circus, in sideshows, in all the elements that go into this. So what's your first theatrical... Like, I know you went to ACT in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Is that the beginning for you, or is there a pre-chapter? No, it, it goes back much further than that. You know, I grew up in Southern California in a uh, suburban community. Where? Uh, it was Long Beach, California. And my mom lived, uh, I mean, my grandmother lived on uh, Orange and Cherry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah. yeah, know, <laughs> know that very well. Know, uh, know that area very well. And that was, that was where uh, Long Beach kind of started, and that was the first suburban area there, all those wonderful homes. And I had a friend who had a beautiful Victorian house uh, down at uh, um, 10th Street, where turned around into 9th Street and Park Circle Drive there. And that's what the old bars were, like where Bukowski and oh, yeah. a lot of them oh, did yeah. their thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, 4th Street, they were just rife. And there's yeah. still a couple of them, like Joe Jost, that are still hanging on and, and become kind of hipster dives now. But they have, it's like Rudy's here in that they they keep the prices cheap so that, you know, drunks and, and lowlifes <laughs> will hang out there. Encouraged. And, and, and sort of chase. <laughs> so it reaches, the people that are just there for a scene kind of get chased out of there very quickly. And the people Because the scene's who, too real. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the people that really like the, the character there. And that was my thing. And growing up in a, in, you know, parents that, Grew up in the divorce, uh, in, in the uh, um, depression, not divorce, but well, actually, there was divorce in our, our, our on my mother's side. You, you did mention you come from California. Yes, yes, <laughs> it is. You know, it's it's the old joke that I, I've done in in, in the uh, tumblers uh, up in uh, the Catskills. With like, how how many years have you been married? You've been married thirty years. That's remarkable. Here, that's a felony out in California, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, um, the. So you're in Long Beach and Long there's Beach, an art scene suburban, there. It, No, it was suburban and it was clean and it was safe and it was quiet. It was pleasant and it was not really exciting place for a kid to grow up. It was had everything you needed except character. And a little shabby magic shop opened up in Los Alamitos, which was this semi-rural community just in Orange County over the border in a shabby little rundown strip mall the place where dreams of small business owners go to die, that kind of place. And uh, this little magic shop opened up, owned, uh, owned by a, a German man and his wife. And I spotted it as we were driving down Los Angeles Boulevard, and I said to my mom, we have to go there. And I made her life a living hell. I was about 10 years old. Made her life a living hell until she would take me there. And I walked in and went, I am home. This place is great. Instantly, you felt yeah, that. Yeah. And you did you, like try card tricks before that no. did you have any no. No. affinity none none 
and he showed me a couple of things. We bought a couple of tricks. They had magic lessons on Saturday afternoons. Uh, I signed up for those and worked my way through it. And the front room had a couple of chairs, and it became sort of like a little clubhouse on Saturday afternoon. And these magicians, uh, and they were ancient. They had to be like 40 years old. <laughs> and would sit there, and they'd chain smoke unfiltered camel cigarettes remember when you could do that in front of kids yeah yeah (laughs) with kids and i'm sitting there and i actually i i came home one time um after kind of having a session there with the the guys and my parents took me aside and said um we just want you to know that you can do what you want but what brand are you smoking yes exactly (laughs) exactly but we don't think you should smoke you know the doctor said it's not good for you you get bronchitis because of the smog and everything i said i'm not smoking these well we know you and then i said come and we went down there and they just saw this miasma of cigarette smoke they went oh okay and no one thought about secondhand smoke at that time so i was like yeah okay you can hang out there um and from there i got to know these performers and their backstory and just doing everything from vaudeville to the nightclub years of the 1950s 40s and 50s and it just was just this wonderful time uh, uh, to you know be a performer because there was so much work out there but it was all just it wasn't also being from like long beach what fabulously interesting bios these and performers I, were they all men back then? By the way, yeah, or for the most part, there, there, there were a couple of women, but for the most part, they were men. And the, even before that, I loved Victorian architecture. I loved old buildings. I loved so I loved going downtown, which was seedy as all get out. We had an amusement park that was like Coney Island called the Pike, and it was my parents said we're never taking you there, <laughs> because by that time, by the 1960s, uh, it there was a naval base nearby, and there were girls working there that would take the sailors in the corner and provide a ride of a different kind <laughs> uh and it was it was seedy and they oh and that was the other thing because it, it was there was sort of this bluff that went down and that was lined with saloons really old turn of the century saloons just great places as i understand uh but we had we had a, a babysitter that when my parents would go off on a vacation my dad traveled quite a bit occasionally would take my mom and aunt betty this old broken down Chrysler from like 1955 that she drove and she'd come and she'd stay with us and she's like well what are we going to do Uh, let's go down to the pike and she took my brother and I down there a couple of times and it was great I loved it and then when my parents heard they raised all so but yeah so So, but I love going down there and just just wondering looking at these buildings because there was craftsmanship I mean look at this building look at this area that we're in here this is uh, historic district here yeah uh and you just this one built originally in 1826 yes and you you look at all of these buildings and go what stories they could tell and that's where we're kind of pulling it back to this this is what we're doing because during that it kind of comes together i got involved with magic and when you're in magic for a while you you become aware of seances and the spiritualistic frauds that had been perpetrated right which are magic tricks but done for believers it looks like miracles so so let's stay because yeah. i think that makes you truly uniquely qualified well, for what you're doing now so let's stay on that sure. track so you get turned on at like 10 mm-hmm. at this joint in long beach which mm-hmm. i just love this yeah because it's so similar to my childhood in many ways yeah growing up in southern california in the 60s yeah so i totally get it 
and how interesting those tra- those guys were. Yeah, and there and were, how intoxicating that is. Yeah. And so was, when did you make the leap? When well, did you make the leap to performance or thinking about it beyond being a fan and saying to yourself, you know what, maybe maybe this is something I'm going to look at. It, again, it was a, a very organic thing. I loved the magic. There was a magic youth group called the Long Beach Mystics, which met at a uh, uh, elementary school. We got the, uh, the auditorium once a month on a Friday night. Uh, and we would do, they would have lectures by fairly well, very well-known magicians would come down and talk to us, uh, teach us things. There were contests, uh, there were performance sites in which the older members, that when you became 21, you were mustered out of the group. Um, and it was, there were no politics. It was just focusing on magic, and it was a great place. And from that group, there's probably 25 professional magicians some people that have headlined on... That's incredible. Uh, That's the, a massive yeah. amount of people yeah, coming really out of is. one thing. It, it really is. It was remarkable. And anyone in the magic community, when they hear about the Long Beach Mystics, they go, oh, you were... Oh, oh. It, so like that's a renowned yeah, one of it, the original sort of... It was of. sort of the Knights Templar of, uh, <laughs> of magic in, in some ways. And so from there, it just became... I started performing. I became the first junior member of the Magic Castle, the famous private club. Uh, for magicians in Hollywood. Very well, very well known and very established. uh, 16 years old, uh, and that, you know, opened all sorts of doors. And I stayed with theater, and I got a degree. So hold on, uh, half a step back. Yeah. Was your first way to ever entertain people live doing magic tricks? definitely, yeah. Tell me about that. Do you remember your the, Do you remember your first time? Yeah, sure. Uh, I it, mean, everybody it, kind of, rem- it, in some ways, yeah. good or bad, remembers the first time. It, it was a, uh, a, a Boy Scout troop at the magic shop. They had a little uh, in the back. They had the classroom, which was also had a stage, and and they uh, we had like twenty uh, uh, Boy Scout, not Boy Scout, uh, Cub Scouts there, and I did a show for them, and I think I made 15 bucks. I think I still have that 15 bucks somewhere. And uh, it was great. And that was like, and wow. Did they, did they get their magic badge, or well, yeah, <laughs> what was it for I, them? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't even know what it, what, what it was all about, but it was, it was fun to do the thing and, and, and put the tricks. And in. how old are you, yes. do you think you are when you did that and got oh, paid? Probably, That's the first time, right? Probably 11 or 12. And then I saw my first sideshow when I was about uh, 12, 13. Sideshow, a carnival came to our neighborhood, and there was a sideshow there. And I wanted to see all the magic I could, and one of the banners out front of the tent was the Master of Magic. And the guy standing in the, on the little stage out front, uh, people call him a barker, the correct term is outside talker, was regaling people and literally talking them into buying a trick. Uh, buying a ticket to come in and see the show. And he'd say, the master of magic will amaze and amuse you, confound and confuse you. Uh, admittedly, his best trick is to walk down the street and turn into a bar, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, and so I went in to see the magic act, and it was, it was a throwaway act at the beginning. Uh, it really wasn't that great, uh, because the magic act, as the crowd is coming in, he starts performing, and usually the show is done as, as a grind. It's continuous. It never stops. You get to the end, and the first act starts, and that's the magic act. And it can be as long or as short, depending upon how many people are coming in. And once the crowd that the guy is talking to has all come in, 
he gives a signal to the uh, ticket taker who gives a signal to the magician and he finishes up his last trick and now you've seen the magic act. Whether you were there and saw five minutes of it or ten minutes of it or you saw one trick, now you've seen the magic act. That's one of the ten acts and attractions we have. Then you see the sword swallower and the fire eater and then the fat lady and the giant or the dwarf and the person laying down on a bed of nails. And it was those working acts, the guy swallowing a sword, the guy eating fire, the person laying down on a bed of nails uh, with their bare back on them and someone standing on top of them, having a cinder block put on their stomach and being broken with a sledgehammer. It was this. I mean, it's hard to fake that. Yeah, you, you don't. It's real. It's yeah. real. There, there are no. That's what a lot of people don't understand. Yeah. They're, they're, you can't fake that. And so by seeing that, it occurred to me that what I was seeing was extraordinary ability beyond the capability of the average person, and that's a good definition for real magic. So, I went back to the magic shop. It was a Saturday afternoon. I'm talking to the old timers, telling them about what I saw, and then I said words that changed my life. I said, I'd love to learn how to do that stuff. One of the guys had worked in a sideshow. And he said, I can teach you that dangerous stuff. Kid, just don't tell your parents. Like, cool. Boom. I, How old are you maybe 13 now? 13 years yeah, old. I like, mean, I'm nothing done. cooler I'm than that. And uh, he did teach me that stuff. And I wanted to know the backstory. I said, where did you learn this? Because, wait, wait, what? You don't just want to learn the tricks? No, I want to learn uh, where, did, where did this stuff come from? Where's the history? What's the lineage? Yeah. And so he told me. And he said, There's, you know, here's someone you should meet. And then I started meeting other performers that had a background in it and learned how to eat glass, how to swallow swords. This guy taught me how to eat fire and hammer a nail into my nose, uh, which was the greatest thing ever. And then I learned all what was called the working acts because they were... Did you spend yeah. kind of your teenage years learning yeah. that? Yeah. Because it was also no one else was doing that. And that's all... Well, especially out in California. Now, there's the yeah. famous Coney Island where I think you end up, yeah. correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So bridge me now from where we are in Long Beach and learning that stuff. Where, is that what brought you to New York originally? And did because Coney Island, of course, being yeah, world no, famous for the sideshows, not and the, really. Uh, there was a duality because while I was doing performance, I was also interested in theater, and so junior high, high school, into college, I was focusing on theater. I was focusing on acting. Uh, and love the more it. traditional and, performers, yeah, but route. it also fed the performance side. You, as an actor, you start learning the relaxation and breathing and diction and voice, and that all ties into being a better performer and a better outside talker, for yeah, that matter. Oh, very much so, and uh, it all feeds into it. And so I went on and got a degree from Cal State Long Beach, which was a great useless degree in theater. Go 49ers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I learned how to make a really great pina colada. That was about the only thing. Uh, well, that, so uh, you didn't come uh, out empty-handed like most. Yes. And, you know, the, 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 there were a couple of good instructors there, but for the most part they were, you know, has-beens that never were and got their tenure and were holding on. And... Um, and I just realized when I got out of there, I said, if I really want to be serious doing anything theater or performance, I need more training. So I applied to ACT and got in and uh, spent a year. So training. for those that aren't familiar, ACT is American Conservatory Theater mm -hmm. Program in San Francisco. Yes. And by the way, one of the most 
renowned in the country. Yeah, there's basically three great training programs, and I know I'm, I, I should say four, and I'll name three of them, and then anyone who's offended that can fill in the blank. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's yours. Mine will be USC, yes. but go ahead. Uh, it, it would be uh, Juilliard, ACT, and Carnegie Mellon are probably the top three. Uh, and uh, it was great because plus well, yours. Yes, and plus, of course, the, the yours. I, you know, which is so special. I'm not going to mention it, but you know who I, you know who you are. Uh, so the, the it was great, but the problem was budget cuts were coming in, and so are we like in the eighties, like early 80s, 70, yeah, 79, right when that yeah. was all happening, and um, budget cuts were coming in, and they only accepted for the second year. They cut down the number of students, and they only accepted students because it was a tuition-free, but they could get funding. Oh, I see. So they brought me in and said, your father makes too much money. So who do you know in Washington that can get us uh, the cuts uh, restored, our money restored? And I said, no one. They said, well, it's been nice knowing you. <laughs> Thanks for shopping. Thank you. We love you so much, and you did such a great job here, but uh, you're not coming back. I'm like, okay. All right. All right. So, but it was, it was such, I was tell so me about, Tell me about your first scene partner at ACT, only because we no, touched on this the other day. It is a, it is it's a good a story. story. Um, they, we were paired up, uh, all the, uh, uh, the students, we were paired up by the faculty and um, chose a scene, which was a Whose Life Is It Anyway? And uh, my scene partner was a lovely, lovely young woman. And we really hit it off because we were both very verbal and glib and made each other laugh. And it was great. And one of the, the one of the first exercises was the, your, you and your scene partner need to get together. Uh, you and your scene partner need to get together and make a dinner go to one apartment or the other and make a dinner and just kind of remember everything. If you, if you have to take notes, whatever, but just, just recall the whole experience and then bring it into class, everything you need and go through the experience again for us, just as it was as organic, as real as possible. So, so that's the, that's the assignment. Yeah. The acting exercise is to go with your scene partner, make a dinner, record it, come back and relive it. Yes. In the class. Yes. Recreate life. Uh, and we did. And we had made a big salad and we were sitting around talking and laughing as we we're making it and joking and having a wonderful time. We brought it in and did it exactly the way we did it. And our um, director slash instructor looked at him and went, huh, uh, okay, uh, who else wants to go? Who wants, uh, let, let's get someone else up. <laughs> someone else went and they were like, you know, I, I, Hey, do you want to do this? Okay. okay. And they were kind of mumbling and doing the thing. And it just, you know, it, it was very small and very kind of dour and drab. And when they finished, he said, that was brilliant. <laughs> so that was so real. That was so organic. That had depth to it and character to it. It had everything that the first one lacked. Because what the two of you that did the first one, it was bullshit. I don't believe a moment of anything you did or who you were in doing that. And like, ah, boom, two by four, right between the eyes. 
And then the next exercise was to go home and call your partner and talk about that day in class. And then the next day, bring that phone call in. And uh, we talked about it. And my scene partner said, that son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, so wait a minute. Now yes. she's doing this in the class in front well, of. She did it on the phone first. Oh, okay. like, I, that is <laughs> such crap. Because I said, I know this is, this is who we are and what we were doing. This is exactly what it was. And she said, that he is so full of shit. You can bleep this out, I guess, uh, if you need to. No. And just, and so we, we finished the phone call, and then we brought it in. And so she's sitting there, and he's sitting right in front of us, and she's saying, he is so full of shit. What a crock that was. They, what, fuck him. And we're, so we're having this, this conversation, and his eyes widened, because I don't think anyone quite brought in a phone call like that. I had called him out so directly. Yeah. Uh, so who was that same partner? Well, part of the conversation. Well, part of the, part of the conversation before the phone call was I went, "Oh man, I know nothing. I'm going to throw everything out that I think I know, and open myself to the experience." And she said, "Yeah, I think the training is very good here, but it's a three-year audition to get into the company across the street because the conservatory, the rehearsal halls, and everything were one side of Gary and the Gary Theater, which was the theater home where they did the performances, were across the street." So she said, it's a three-year um, audition to get into the company across the street. And I go, no, I think it's really about, you know, learning. And she said, no, it's a, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a large, long audition. I go, I don't know. I don't know, Annette Benning. Uh, I'm not sure you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and she did. She did. And what, did, I forget, did Annette actually join the oh, yeah. company ACT? Oh, yeah. Is yeah, that yeah, what? yeah, she was there for a number of yeah. years. And then did some regional theater. She did a really beautiful uh, uh, production of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, yeah, she always had real theater chops. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah legit. And uh, she had a lovely career and then came here and did a show on Broadway. The first thing was called Seascape. I think it was Albie, Edward yeah, Albee. that is an Albie. And it's a, like a... Uh, uh, small little wasn't that story. part of what he originally called the C plays yes or a so. series of which, plays he which wrote. probably started in this theater downstairs since he he may had well this, have he he had this space back in the 1950s yeah, for the writer's workshop yeah yeah so anyway so it, it's kind of weird how it all kind of comes together so hold on we still yeah. got to get you to Coney Island yeah so after spending uh, another year in in San Francisco and doing some theater, performing with uh, the New York or the San Francisco Opera, their summer series, doing a lovely uh, performance of the Merry Wives of Windsor, and other doing a couple other shows and getting some work and everything, everything started drying up. The little theater companies were really hitting the skids, yeah. closing down. Funding was just gone. Reagan had just come into office and was like, oh, arts, who needs those? Boom. And uh, the tax laws were changing that made investing in theater and producing theater much harder. So all of a sudden, everything was drying up. And I was like, I don't want to just work a day job forever. I, I want to perform for a living. So I went, what should I do? I can go back down to L.A., but it's all industry-based there, and I don't find... And having grown up there and know all those people, I don't find an ounce of sincerity. I want something real. I want something. I want character. Once again, that 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 theme. 
Uh, and I said, I'm going to go to New York. I'd never been here. A friend of mine uh, had moved back here, and I said, if there's a sublet comes up on the equity board, let me know. Called me and said, there's a what, sublet. What year was that? Like 1980, yeah. uh, late 80. Very similar paths. I came early and, 82. Yeah, and he uh, called me up and said, there is a, uh, a, a sublet uh, that is available. Um, and uh, might have been early 81. And, and there's a sublet that's available um, in uh, Hell's Kitchen. I didn't know where that was. I had no idea. Uh, and it's for someone that's going out on the road with uh, Sandy Duncan doing um, uh, Peter Pan. No, we're going to be gone for six months. Great. So I called the woman. It was way before internet and all that. And she said, if you want this apartment, um, you have to, I, we have to meet you. I said, fine. So I booked a flight that night, flew out the next day, had booked a hotel room, didn't know where it was in the city, uh, and you know, booked a flight to Newark, didn't know where the hell that was. <laughs> flew into Newark, got off the plane, uh, there was a little transportation center. I said, I need to get into New York. How do I do it? And they said, this is a bus right there. And I said, where does it go? The Port Authority bus terminal. I had no idea. Get off the bus. Remember rolling in and looking at all the brownstones and tenements and going, this is the dirtiest city I have yeah. ever seen. Uh, and got off. And there was a cop. And I said, I need to find this hotel. It's called the Milford Plaza. Where is it? And he says, ah, two blocks right like there. Right across the street. Yeah. yeah so yeah, I yeah. walked down and I walked in and I had the uh, little tiny room. I'm not saying the room was small, but the mice were hunchbacked. That's how small. <laughs> I put in the key in the door and it broke a window. That's how small it was. Yeah. yeah I had to go into the, out to the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, out of the room into the hallway in order to change your mind. That's how small. <laughs> All it was. You couldn't. Uh, anyway, and I phoned the, the woman and said, uh, I'm here. I don't know where you are, but I'm uh, at the, the Milford Plaza. She said, I'm half a block away on 45th Street at the, the Whitby. I'm like, oh, this is kind of looking fortuitous. Uh, so I ended up uh, meeting her, and Ford, that was, that's where I first worked the no smoking playhouses right yeah, on yeah, that block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, and well, uh, then became primary stages, yes. and then and then uh, on and on from yeah. from there. Yeah, uh, and my first theater experience in New York was professionally at the No Smoking Playhouse. Literally, you can't make it up. I walked in; everybody on the crew was smoking in yeah. the theater. Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. Please, these were the days of civilization. <laughs> uh, but so the the end, end result. So you landed yeah, in New York. Landed here, signed the thing. Went back to uh, San Francisco, had a, uh, the night I was here, literally uh, you know, 24 hours, uh, signed the sublet, had a burger and a shot of bourbon sitting at the bar at Jimmy Ray's on 8th oh, yeah. Avenue between 45th and 46th, yeah. The steam table in the front. Oh yeah, it was just it was wonderful. And we uh, I, I flew back, packed everything up. And uh, moved the next week uh, to New York, landed here. Uh, I had been, uh, had been doing a day job in San Francisco that had a headquarters here in uh, New York. And the manager said, well, if, you know, from New York came out, kind of overlooked and said, if you ever need a job in New York, just let me know. I let him know. So I had a day gig. So I got here, I had a, a job, 
And then just started hanging out with Jimmy Ray, started meeting directors, meeting yeah, actors. Yeah, for people that don't know, Jimmy Ray's is in the heart of the theater yeah, district of no New York. Yeah, no longer, long gone and, and sorely missed. There was that, and McHale's was across the street. Yeah, we actually, ironically, Jimmy McHale was yeah. a good, good friend of mine. That just uh, moved. Jimmy and I played softball 25 years together in New York Show Business League. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, there's McHale's around the corner, and they, they try to say it's, you know, it's... You know, carrying on the tradition, but no, right. no, no, no. So, how did you get to Coney Island? Well, you know, from one of the people I, around Jimmy yeah. Ray's but in that know, neighborhood at yeah, the time. You know what that? You know what that sign? You know what that whole whole scene was? Sure, uh, was uh, there? And, and there was a lot of off Broadway theater, and I was going out, and I, I was actually of, managing off. in those early years yeah. the theater route yeah. on Forty Second Street yeah. with all those off Broadway theaters, little, little, little great spaces. And there was so much that was going on, but the entry level was usually off, off. And I found I was auditioning for people I really didn't like mm. for plays that were really bad community theater with the pretensions of high art. And it was also about the same time that the comedy club boom hit. And it hit big. Yeah. And there were more comedy clubs than there were stand-up comedians. They were go, doing good material. And the comedy clubs, for the most part, were an MC that would open the show and do about 10, 15 minutes, a middle that would do 25, and then the headliner would do 30 to 45. Uh, and the middle act, uh, often they would put in a variety performer. They'd put in a juggler or a magician. And so I dusted off my old comedy magic stuff and started working. There was a club down here uh, in Greenwich Village called Mostly Magic yeah. on Carmine and Bedford. And uh, I met the owner and auditioned there. And uh, he made me one of the resident uh, MCs there. And also about that time, MTV had started and they had a... Um, Show I I don't remember that I someone said Viva Variety I'm not sure if that was it, but there was some sort of a, a variety show on MTV short lived but they wanted I got the call that they want something unusual so I remembered one of the old sideshow skills of sticking my hand into an animal trap having it snap shut on my hand and doing no harm to my hand and I did that for them. They were that's wild. So I did the show. And then I said, well, I got this damn thing. I'm going to put it in the act. And I would do a comedy magic trick. And I said, well, that was a trick, but this isn't. Set it up and do it. And people would gasp and then go on with the rest of the act. What, would you do that as the middle act in these yeah. comedy structures yeah. we Com just yeah. talked? Yeah. yeah. And there were so many little clubs here also in the yeah. city where you could work. There was a lovely little cabaret room. It was mostly uh, music, but they would occasionally let uh, performers in. I, I mean, I, I did uh, Don't Tell Mama. Yeah. Uh, Sidney Meyer is an old, old friend. Uh, and uh, there was a place called Five and Ten, no exaggeration, uh, here in Soho. And there were a number of these little places. Most of them are long gone. And people would put together variety nights and stuff, and I would kind of yeah. jump into it. And, um, and really hone the act. And when I did the, that, the animal trap, that one thing that wasn't a trick, people would come up and go, it's got to be a trick. You can't really do that. And if you can do it, how is that possible? And I go, oh, this is an interesting response because when you do a magic trick and you go, how do you do that? I, say, I can't tell you, but this right. you can. That's the code. Everybody it, knows. Yeah. But with, with the sideshow stuff, it's almost more interesting 
the 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 backstory of it and the working of it because it they're all for the most part the working acts are uh, the, the sword swallowing fire eater it's all based on physics and anatomy and since most people slept through physics and anatomy it seems miraculous possible yeah, yeah. It, it seems miraculous it seems a miracle so i started resurrecting all the old sideshow stuff i had learned when i was a teenager but never really performed and then using these little open mics uh, started putting that into the comedy magic act and started pushing out the comedy magic. And then an agent saw me do the sideshow stuff and said, I can book this in the colleges. Like, oh, okay. And he said, yeah, it, it, uh, the, I can get, we can uh, get you at least 1,500 uh, per, wow. per performance. Like, okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's more than my middle set. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a horse of a different color. Yeah. So, and you know, the, the comedy clubs were actually paying decent money too. You'd go in there and sometimes you'd do a Friday, Saturday, or sometimes a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And, uh, all of this was good money. I was, you know, paying the rent. And by that time, the, the sublet was long gone. I found another apartment around the corner, an old tenement building. It was really run down. The, they, the city had taken the apartment house away from the owner. He still had title to it because he paid the taxes, but they appointed an administrator to bring it up and get rid of the 360 building violations. <laughs> when I saw... Even, that's bad even for that neighborhood. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but it was unique because the guy was a, a, a non-resident landlord that kept paying the taxes. If they didn't pay the taxes, they would grab the building they take it from yeah take it from you but they they didn't do that so it was sort of like a foster child building you know um and the the administrator i'd met through a friend from jimmy ray's i I went in there and i was like going around everyone i said i need an apartment i got a sublet it's almost up i need an apartment by the way that's how new york yeah people forget that's how it used to work Oh, completely. I, would, I got my first apartment uh, in, I think, Jimmy Ray's or Jimmy McHale's. Yeah. And it, watching a Yankee game and yeah. just let, you know, on a hot August day yeah. and just saying, oh, yeah, I'm losing my sublet. And, yeah. you know, the conversations, that's how you got your apartments yeah. in Midtown back and that, then. And that's exactly what happened. And I walked into this, this building. They had just put a new front door because it had been kicked in by junkies. Uh, and sure enough, walked into an apartment that had... Uh, a door that had been broken uh, and there was a junkie sleeping on a mattress and a foot and a half of garbage with thousands of needles and wax from mm. uh, candles because there was no electricity in the apartment and uh, I said I'm home <laughs> <laughs> and she said you know the rent was I think man I think the rent was like 125 I was going to guess a couple hundred bucks yeah 125 bucks but it was we're going to put a new front door on this and everything on the inside sweat equity you take care of it yeah we'll get the heat you'll get the water uh, we'll get electricity but you take care of everything else so I spent a month literally shoveling shit out of there yeah Making it livable. Yeah, and then moved in and started but just But now doing. home base in New York City, everybody's yeah. dream. Yeah, and so it just it just it blossomed from there, and I still live in that apartment. Uh, a neighbor of ours above us passed away. So wait a minute, are you actually rent-controlled? No. Or stabilized? Oh, no, 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 no. It gets better. It's, oh, it's, no. It gets better. I used to like Todd before this, yeah. but keep going. Yes. Um... <laughs> After a decade of not 
getting any money from for his building the landlord who was an attorney for the government thank you very much lived down in the baltimore dc area put it up for sale uh we approached him we organized the uh tenants association and said we'd like to buy it and he went no you people have been taking advantage you've been living in my building taking advantage of me i refuse to even talk to you I'm like okay so with the help of a community action group we found a lawyer the same one that was you know, bringing the building up to code. We uh, found a lawyer who, for pro bono, would represent us, and we've made a corporation, and he represented this corporation that wanted to buy the building, and we got funding from private... uh, Amazing. ...private organizations that were about tenants and all this, and and kind of anti-gentrification and all this. And we got these. We got one loan that was a zero interest, and another one that was five percent interest. Uh, and you guys actually years. collectively bought the building. And we bought the building. Isn't that amazing? For no money out of our pocket. However, this guy had spent like two years That's negotiating this. Now, thirty-five years ago. Yeah. And he spent two years, so we all kicked in five hundred dollars to give to him. And there were uh, eighteen apartments. And uh, so he got nine grand as a thank you. And so I bought a one-bedroom apartment in Hell's Kitchen for $500 in the late 80s. That is astounding. Yeah. That's the best of those stories I've ever heard. And then 10 years ago, our um, neighbor above us, who had been a longtime resident, uh, she had uh, diabetes and emphysema and didn't see any reason to stop smoking uh yeah why now (laughs) i know sad i know but uh and her son she was dying she knew it and uh her son didn't want the apartment because he was living in california and his parole officer wouldn't let him leave the state that kind of tells the story doesn't yeah there you go well that that kind of bespeaks of the neighborhood back then yes so you know, of the Westies and yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. All kinds of nuttiness. So I'm still determined to get you to Cody Island. Oh, I'm getting there. <laughs> so uh, 10 years ago, uh, I went up there and said, Seal, can I talk to you? And she said, yeah, you want the apartment, don't you? I went, well, we do have a kid, and the par- our apartment is getting smaller. And she said, I want you to have it. And I, how about this? And she hit us with the price. It was way below market value. She said, I want my son to have some money to improve his life. He's living in Oakland and not a great neighborhood. Mm-hmm. This will allow him to do something. But I don't want to give him too much because he's an he's, you know, idiot and he'll spend it all. <laughs> so we got a deal and bought that apartment for a, a song uh, and then ended up putting a spiral staircase in. and so Connecting we have a the duplex. two. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so that's so that's, you that's, truly have the New York apartment story yes. of all time. It it is it is one of those dreams, but paid for in other ways because you remember the neighborhood. Oh uh, my It was gosh. all the drugs yeah. and prostitution you can eat through the eighties and and oh 90s. yeah, really tough business, yeah. especially during the the middle late eighties. Yeah. Very tough business. Uh, but it was interesting. My one of my favorite things about the neighborhood was back in the eighties, uh, the drug dealers. And the pimps would leave the residents alone because they worked these same corners and these same streets 
every day and we right. knew who they were. Right. We could pick them out in a lineup. And there's an old saying, you don't shit where you eat. And, and we knew that. And there would be waitresses that would come home from work at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning and get out of a cab. And a drug dealer would say, hey, Susan, it, it, there's some kind of love lives. Let me walk you to, the, to yeah. the, your door. Yeah. And actually, no, it's what true. When I used yeah. to tend bar till 4 in the morning yeah. in that neighborhood, and it, you're exactly right. Yeah. And I'd, I'd come home at 4 in the morning. And if anybody would even come up to me on the street, four guys would come out of doorways and go, hey, Cole, everything okay? Yeah. You, everything yeah. good? Yeah. Uh, literally, that yeah. was the neighborhood policed itself. Yeah, it was, re- it was very strange. In, the, in those days. Um, it was, and it was you know, lovely. But then again, I'm a white guy that's you know, 6'4", so I, it was kind of easy for me. But it, what, the, the reason I didn't tell the story about the apartment is it made my monthly nut very low. I, so does that allow you to take greater risk as an artist? You, yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it, that, that's the, why that matters. Yeah. It, not so much risk. It just allowed me to play. It gave me freedom. Same thing, basically. It gave me freedom so that in 1992, when a number of the performers out in Coney Island, the sideshow had been running for about six years out there. It, it, the history of the sideshow goes back to the turn of the century. Uh, in Coney Island, but and not with that, but in, in the history of Coney Island no. itself with that uh, sideshow yeah. is the real, is like the cyclone. It, it's had great ups, it's had big downs. Yeah. So when you got into it, is what year and where was it on the cyclone, if you will? Ninety two, and things were. Um, it, it was a strange time out there in that a lot of the land was owned by you know crusty old landlords that had done well for themselves, and they thought they were going to make a killing that Disney was going to come in and buy up all the land. And so they, instead of investing in it, would let buildings burn down, uh, yeah. fall apart, and just put, you know, tear down things and put blacktop and chain link around it. And so it, if you look at the great photos from the turn of the century of all the, the wonders, uh, how glorious Coney Island was, it was, you know, 10% at the most of what it once was. But, but now then, it's had a it's come revival. Back, yeah. Quite a significant and revival. Yet, and yet out there in the old days, they had things like, you know, a photo studio where, uh, you know, they had the cutouts and you could look like the strong man or be, you know, sitting on the moon and waving to your, your relative and they take, you know, kind of tin type. Um, and even that, you know, lasted up until the 1960s when the folks that were, had been running it for 50 years or more died and there was no one to take over because you could make more money working in a McDonald's than you could uh, do in the hard scrabble life of, of uh, uh, you know working out in Coney Island for a season um, so they, they were just it, it was because it had to come heels. there's that great it's not Coney Island but there's that great scene in the movie The Sting when we first uh, discover uh, Paul Newman's character in the carousel and just the way they filmed that was so beautiful because it said so many things about the grand tradition of carousels yes. that it took the guy in the in the guts of it literally to run it but that the whole thing had gone yeah. down well the, the last carousel in Coney Island um, from the old days was the B&B carousel on Surf Avenue and there was a guy who ran it and he ran it every day uh, for like 40 that guy, years. right, that lived in, literally lived, he, probably lived he nearby lived around, or... Yeah, he lived around the corner and he opened it 365. If there was a blizzard, he wouldn't open it. And he repaired it. He repaired the band organ and kept it in tune. 
uh, everything was, and he'd sit there and he'd sell tickets in summer. He'd have someone else sell the tickets and, and make it because that's when the money was coming in. But he would keep it. And then the 4th of July, one year, it didn't open. Is and, that when we knew he was done? Yeah. And they went and did a wellness check and found he had a heart attack in his sleep. Yeah. Literally till his last day. Yeah. So was Coney Island like the image? A lot of people know the image of that, like downtrodden. Was Coney Island truly like that when? Oh yeah. When oh, you yeah. went out to perform? Yeah, very much so. And um, how many years did you do that? And what skill? What what shows did you do there? Because I think a lot of what Hawk Quest ends up being and Play Dead and some of your other shows have its origins there, certainly, yeah. right? It's, it's really about just resurrection of these wonderful bits of popular culture uh, and things that were part of our world that are no longer. I love the history of it, but not so much, you know, a, an academic and let's preserve it as pristine and don't touch, but what is the vibrancy that can be brought back? Uh, what is the form and function of this? So... The, well, that sort of d- relates yeah. directly to Hawk Quest. Yes, very much so. So Coney Island, I went out there. They were need some new performers. Uh, I showed my stuff. Dick Ziggin, the founder of Coney Island USA, shook my hand and said, a kindred spirit, we start on Easter weekend. I started there eating glass, uh, the Coney Island glass eater. I would eat a light bulb in every performance. And I have eaten... Somewhere in the neighborhood of 5,000 light bulbs, I am in... That's 5,000 more than most people. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, almost, almost. We, we, you, you ingest more glass than you'd like to know, but anyway... Uh, but you, yeah, but I've done you it for acknowledge. Yeah, I, I, made a, I made a gig out of it. Uh, and I, for many years, would joke about it when people say, what do you do? I eat glass for a living. I'm like, well, okay. Um, so... So you ate glass, what else? Yes, and and would hammer a nail into my nose, swallow swords, do fire. I was sort of the general practitioner out there. Worked a full season in 92, worked, I think, most of the season in 93, and then 94, 95 would fill in, come, kind of come in and out, depending upon uh, when they had a hole in the schedule, because people would come and go all the time, performers. And, uh, and I've stayed active out there. As a matter of fact, uh, the last day of... The season, or 19, I guess, uh, 2019, or, yeah. in October, the last day October of the season. October 19, right, would be the um, last. And before, you know, all, uh, everything shut down, I was l- performing on the stage there and took my kid, Finn, out there because he can hammer a nail in his nose and walk over broken bottles <laughs> on his bare feet. And so uh, he worked with me out there and it was just, it was a well, glorious That must have been thing. a thrill to work with your kid yeah. out there. Oh, and he loved it because, you know, he got to do this and then there's enough time. I was kind of running the show and doing a bunch of other stuff, but I would hammer a nail in my nose and, and, and it's a real thing. It just goes straight back on the top of the throat. And I do it, and I pull out, and I say, now, this is based on knowledge. And with the right knowledge, anyone can do it. This could be done by an 11-year-old child, Finn. And he'd come out, and bring his nail, and have someone take a look at it, and hammer it into his nose, and it would, people would scream. Uh, and he would, you know, do it, and go, oh, oh. I said, what's wrong? He said, I thought I hit a bone, but what do you get from a bone? That's what you get when you're a bonehead. You know, and he's doing those jokes. And I said, you know. Why do you do this? He said, because my doctor said I needed more iron. All right, fine. Ah. So we're doing the jokes and the gags. And he loved it because on his break, he could go off and ride the rides and then come back and then do the act with me. 
And at the end of the day, the the manager of the sideshow walked up and said, Finn, here's a pay, and handed him cash. And he went, this is the greatest Daddy, day of my life. Finn sees the light. Oh. <laughs> so we, as we're driving home, he says, okay, so next year, I'm thinking maybe I'll, I'll add in, maybe do that. Like, calm scheduling, down, boy. Yeah. Calm down, boy. So um, I think I got aware of you uh, a little bit here and there through acts, but then carnival knowledge, I yeah. think, is... So now take me from doing that in, in Coney Island and creating carnival knowledge. Well, I saw Penn and Teller, and it was a revelation. I saw them when they were originally a trio in the Asparagus Valley Cultural Society, a variety act in, um, in San Francisco. And it was during that, that variety, the new vaudeville boom, which... People like Avner, the eccentric, and Michael Motion, and uh, the Asparagus Valley, and Bill Irwin was still with the Pickle Family Circus at that oh, time. Yeah. And all these performers. Bill, the, probably oh, my favorite clown of all oh, time. Oh, just it, brilliant. And it knows, you see, because he knows the traditions and has just absorbed it all and made it his own and and then just expanded. What was that great it. thing he did with Dave Shiner, A Fool Moon? Yeah, Fool Moon. And then they did one a couple of years ago at the second stage, They uh, kind of a second edition of it. It was called Old Hats. Oh, yeah. And it was lovely. It, though seeing guys in their 60s doing, uh, uh, you know, fall down slapstick comedy, you kind of go, oh, are you all yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. You can lose a hip. And it was, <laughs> it was funny because I, I went to a, a talk back afterwards, and the two of them were sitting there. And Shiner's there, and, and uh, uh, Bill Irwin's standing next to him. And Bill has an ice pack on his knee, and Shiner is getting massaged <laughs> by a muscular therapist as they're going, yes, we love this. We'll never give this up. <laughs> and then Bill said to me, he said, yeah, they want to this, take this back to Broadway, but we can't. We can't do it. So are those the guys that inspired you? It was those, yeah. It was those make, guys. To make your show? But specifically, it was is Penn and Teller, because when, they, when they, the, the trio broke up, and it was just Penn and Teller, and they put their show together and they brought it to New York in 1985 off Broadway. I saw it in previews and I went, huh, this is how you take this entertainment and make it theater. And I went, huh, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to take the background I have in theater. And I had been doing plays and things in addition you know, to doing the, the comedy clubs. I all all put, along the way, right? Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to put it all together. And as they didn't use that as an inspiration. So I was playing around with it, playing around with it. And then in the late 90s, in the mid 90s, um, I had been entertaining kids in the hospital with the Big Apple Circus, doing magic tricks and stuff and uh, doing corporate work with them. Because when the show was out on the road and Paul Binder, uh, the founder and ringmaster, he wasn't around when they do corporate stuff, I would ringmaster the, the shows. And... They decided in 1995 to do a show called Jazzmatazz. And it was a New York in the jazz age. And like, oh man, I want to be part of that show. I want to be part of that show. Because I love New York. I love the jazz age. I play traditional jazz and ragtime piano. Uh, I've played a lot with Woody Allen through the years, recorded two albums with him uh, and a number of other bands and stuff. So I was like, ah, this, this is in my wheelhouse, as they say. I don't know who they are, and I don't know why they say that, but they do say. <laughs> yeah. in, they were right. No, they, they were right. <laughs> and so, uh, so I wanted to be part of it, but they had already hired a stand-up comedian to be the host slash ringmaster for the show. This every man of the jazz age. But he couldn't do one performance. He couldn't do Yom Kippur because he was Jewish. Is this your Wally Pip story? 
this is this is my all about Eve story. So do you uh, know what Wally Pip references? No, no, I don't. Wally Pip was the first baseman for the New York Yankees before Lou Gehrig began his record-setting 2,200-game streak. There, because Wally Pip went out one day. Yeah, there you go. So that was yes, exactly. Um, All about Eve, way more theater-oriented. Yeah, well, Thank please, you. But yeah. <laughs> so we can do a slap. Miss Eve Wally Harrington. Pip, yeah, yeah, Eve. Yes. <laughs> So when they came and said, would you do the performance? I was kind of pissed that I, I had been sort of passed over because I, no pun intended, I'd, uh, would you perform on uh, Yom Kippur? No, I've been passed over. Yeah. Uh, and well, I I've almost done. said no. I, if I had a snare, yeah, I, I yeah, would exactly. give it Thank to you. you. Rimsha. Um, which, by the way, the old, talking about arcane uh, uh, entertainment, there's a thing that the comedians used to, do when they were playing uh, and they had a band and they would say okay I'm going to say this line and then they'd say to the drummer give me a bucket of fish they go okay and when a bucket of fish is is the tom toms and a snare so it's bucket of fish <laughs> to accent the, the jokes I never bucket knew of that fish. Yeah. So, there you go. Of fish. So, wow. the, so it's educational so you can get a grant for this yes. easily uh, anyway so this is by the way this segment is brought to you by our education program yes it is uh, Darren Cole University uh, send your checks today uh, so the so I did the one performance and it was fun and I had a great time and Paul Binder came to me uh and said, listen, I've always wanted to do a medicine show, theme the whole circus as a traveling medicine show. And I never found the right person to be the snake oil salesman. And I think it's you, Todd, because the question is not whether you can talk, but whether you'll ever shut up. (laughs) And I said to him, thank you. Try complimenting me with your right hand next time. (laughs) And I almost said no. But then I went, yeah, let's just do this. This and it was. Is that what became Carnival Knowledge as I know it? We're getting there. We're getting there. I had been starting to put together Carnival Knowledge, this show about my experience working in sideshows, because it's such a rich, vanishing world, uh, part of our culture, a subculture that has all but died out. And I, it really spoke to me, and I thought, this is the show I need to do. So the end result was, um, I said, I'm, I'm going to take a little detour and I'm going to do the Big Apple Circus. And then we did it and it was the, one of the most successful years they ever had. So much so that Paul Biner decided to stop directing the show and turn it over to other people. Uh, and he then came to me and said, next year is our 20th anniversary. Uh, would you like to host that show? And I said, No. I said, yes, I would. Wow, that, I mean, honestly, that feels like a very big opportunity yeah. to issue. Yeah. But at that time, there was a producer that was interested in producing Carnival Knowledge. And that there is a point in life as an artist, right, where you're, like, you're either in or out for your thing. Yeah. Did you actually oh, sit with yourself and say, this so. is my moment? This, yeah, it was like, ah. I've had those moments where it's like, am I going with me or am I I going safe? And, you know, I I saw through the years there were a number of performers who uh, made their home at the Big Apple Circus and and did very well for themselves, both, uh, you know, uh, creatively and financially and... and, Made a real life and career. Yeah, made a real life. Because if you're going to do a circus, that was a circus to do. 
uh, you know, playing Lincoln Center for 10 weeks uh, in the, the fall into the holiday season and then going up to Boston. And truly and then, the dream game. Oh, and, tra- and travel through the, mid- through the uh, 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 New England and end up, you know, in the Berkshires. It's yeah. glorious. It's, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. So it was really hard, but we had someone who said, I want this. And it turned out that he didn't want it, that he was stringing along my director, who he had... This is somebody promising the money. Yeah. He had a beef with her because she had done a show and his girlfriend wanted to play the lead. Girlfriend that later became his wife. And it came down to between the girlfriend and someone else and the director went with someone else. And that was the fatal blow. Yeah. So he strung us along and I had said no. And then at one time he uh, took us out to dinner uh, as we had all the the plans for doing it and said, I have no intention of doing this. And this is why and told us the whole story as just a big fuck you to her. And I just got, and we had already, we had, and uh, you already said no to Big Apple by yeah, then, and, and we, sort of throw you lot in, you threw and, your lot in with this. And there was a major uh, theatrical agent who wanted the show. Oh boy! Uh, and we said oh, we don't really need you. We have a producer. So there were there was there were major major bridge burning uh, that happened. Uh, and so this is you know this is ninety seven. So massive education for you. You're, uh, I'm guessing you're approaching 40 years old. Yeah. Yeah. This is like career lifetime. Yeah. This is big stuff. Yeah. So So how'd you come out of that? What what happened? The good news was that I still maintain my relationship with colleges and uh, enough that I, I could gig around. We started up. Uh, Monday Night Magic in 97 at the Solomon Street Playhouse on Mondays there. Yeah, actually, we hosted you for a bit yeah. here at Soho Playhouse. Yes, yes. Now, uh, that, that, talk that, a little bit about that yeah. briefly, because that's one of the that, that was preeminent the, and, I would say, most successful magic yeah. shows well, in it, New York. Longest running uh, magic show in the history of, of, uh, of New York. Uh, How about that? That's, yeah. that's quite a statement. And so the way it worked out was that we ended up... Um, uh, there was a man named Michael Chout who had performed at Mostly Magic every once in a while and was making a transition from being a very successful uh, insurance salesman to being a full-time performing magician, doing corporate gigs and things like that. And he just realized that since Mostly Magic had closed, there was not a place where, mag- where the public had, could go to see really good magic, and he wanted to do a showcase night. And originally it was going to be once a month, and then we started, and he knew uh, Tony Noto, uh, Lauren, Lauren Noto's son and Tony said we got nothing on Mondays at the Sullivan if you need it put in a little extra money sure for those that remember New York Theater Lauren that's where the Fantastics played for two years there you go so the end result was that um, we took over and we did once a month and, but after like a, a month it, the, the desire was so great that we decided to go uh, once a week and uh, we jumped to that and have been doing it since 1997. Uh, and every Monday night, and we have and, we've and, outlived a lot of theaters. And we, shout, well, shout out to my friends at the Players. Are you currently there? Yeah, 
We are. We are. We are currently uh, probably going back there. Uh, maybe maybe June, uh, if depending upon how things are. Uh, we'll see. We're, we've been doing online Monday shows, uh, which is interesting because we can bring in performers that uh, have always wanted to do Monday Night Magic, but are in Switzerland. Yeah, but now or, they can. Yeah, yeah. So now it's it's uh, a nice little lineup of performers that can uh, do it from the. So virtual. before we we, so, we have to wrap in yes, a minute, but I, I want to I want to get. First of all, I wanted to touch on Monday Night Magic yep. because I'm a great admirer of the legacy of that. Mm-hmm. And we're proud to have had it. Yes. You've had carnival knowledge here at Soho yes. Playhouse. Well, that's, that's what happened was I wanted to do my own show. And Monday Night Magic was a showcase for magic. And I really wasn't performing that much magic these, those days. I was doing all the sideshow stuff, getting the colleges, universities, and, and places like that. And I said, I want to do a once-a-week show, a late-night show, and found the theater here doing a wonderful show called uh, Underneath the Lentil. Yes. And uh, TJ was doing it, I think, at yeah, that time. Glorious. Yeah, glorious. So we started doing um, late night, like 10.30 at night, uh, on Saturdays, a thing called Sideshow Saturday Night, every Saturday. And then from that... Uh, when the lentil closed, uh, blossomed into a full run, and we retitled it uh, Carnival Knowledge. I got to do the full show here, ran for about a year. Uh, and then from there, we took it on the road, and when that kind of faded out, I, when I was playing around with the original idea of what the show to do, the, it was either a seance show or it was going to be a side show themed show. Right. And I went with the side show themed, and so when that uh, Carnival Knowledge played kind of itself out. I was like, okay, let's do a seance show. And I started playing with it, and I came up... Is this where Play Dead comes out of? It does. Yes, it does. It started originally in the Fringe as a show called Dark Deceptions, and it was all about spiritualistic fraud, the tricks that the spiritualists use to make you believe. And it was fun, and it was scary, but it didn't. It wasn't quite complete. Alan Schuster came on board, as a, uh, who was the producer of Stomp, uh, he got the option of it, and he said, you need a director. And we talked to a number of theater directors, but none of them quite got the idea. And I reached out to Teller and said, would you, of uh, Penn and Teller, and said, would you like to direct this? And because I'd known him and Penn for many, many years. And he said, yes. And then we started looking at the show, and we ripped it all apart, rewrote the whole thing, and it became a show called Play Dead, which we did at the Players Theater. Uh, ran a year there. And I saw it a couple of times. Yeah. It was marvelous. It was really fun. It, it was really they, a big hit. And yeah. it was super and fun it, and creepy. And was that your first sort of? Uh, I hate uh, generalizing, but was that your first taste of the macabre and dealing with some of the elements that turn out to be haunt quest? Uh, no, they, they, there's been again. There have been a lot of currents that have been flowing through my life. Uh, and one of them is this appreciation of darkness. Uh, everything from just the character in Long Beach, California, of the old downtown area, magic with all of its mystery, the sideshow being that subculture, and also this side of real horror and spooky and creepy things. So not only did I know all about the the fake side of spiritualism i also had a good understanding of the things that there are no tricks yeah. there are no hidden wires well, sort of the difference between magic and sleight of hand yes. sleight of hand as a skill is yeah. a real thing and this was what i've always been fascinated with why 
when trickery is not employed, why do the dead come forth? Why do people have an encounter with a spectral entity? And exploring that for many, many years and playing with it, uh, in a, a friend of mine has a black box theater out in Williamsburg, and I'd go in there about every six weeks on a Tuesday night and do a thing called the Darkness Project and play with all these things and old things that no one was doing anymore, things resurrected, things I'd learned from old timers, uh, things I'd t- taken out of books and like, I want to try this and would try it. Some things worked, some things didn't. Some things worked enough, they needed more work. And then from that, I had all this pool of stuff, and I decided I wanted to do a seance room and put it all in at the McKittrick Hotel, the home of sleep no more. So I went in there and talked to those guys, and I said, do you have a room? I know the producers well. And I said, do you have a room that you're not using? They said, yes, we do. And while looking at that room, and I went, this is perfect. There are no windows. I can get a complete blackout. We can put a table in here that will seat 13 people. Perfect, perfect, perfect. They said, great, we'll produce it. And they said, we also want to do a magic show. So we just got talking and created a show called Speakeasy Magic, which uh, was very successful there. And it will be coming back uh, sometime, hopefully towards the middle or end of summer, uh, depending upon what's happening in New York. Right. But in the meantime, I had all this material that I wanted to try there. I tricked the room out, decorated it, just set it so that you walk in there and you feel creeped out. And now you're mine. Once you get that framework around of what the experience is going to be and you start setting a sense of anticipation, I've got you. I'm now going to play with your imagination and your souls and take you on a ride, the roller coaster ride through the darkness. It's amazing to me how willing we are to go oh, yeah. on that ride. Or well, you know, not only just willing, maybe even sort of need to. Or Well, again, it, it taps into the great mysteries uh, things we don't quite know what, uh, what, what is, what happens? What is there an afterlife? There, there is a reality of all of this yes. that lives within us. Uh, so proportionately, I don't know how to allocate what is the reality of the metaphysical or is the metaphysical real because I harbor it and want it. You know, that's sort of a rabbit hole. Yeah, very much so. You can get way down very quickly. In the show I talk about, and I say, and then you will come to appreciate the illusion within the reality of illusion and the reality (laughs) within the illusion of reality. Yeah, like looking in the mirror. Yeah, exactly. So it kind of twists around in a spiral that takes you down. But there is something in the human, the most humans, that wants to sit in this room with you and at least not be cynical and explore... In some cases, the depths, and at least at most cases, at least the outer edges of something. And what I'm bringing here, without making it into a lecture, is I'm laying out all these esoteric principles and procedures that have been used and doing them in the the original organic form so that people can have the experience as generations have before them for this sort of forgotten experience. And like I say, I had all this material that I found fascinating and was amazing me as I was doing this out in, in uh, Brooklyn. And then I got uh, an email from Britt, uh, the, your manager. Our here. general manager, uh, old, managing director. Yeah, old, ma- old friend of mine. And he said, we're really pushing to do something live, something small, something upstairs in the loft. Uh, would you be interested? I said, yes. 
And he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to uh, raise the dead for fun and profit. And he goes, okay, fine. <laughs> and Brit is like, yeah, okay, all right. He knows me well. Well, and okay. then, as I say in the intro, a metaphor for the theater itself now. Yes, yes. So we're bringing things back to life by delving with the dead here. Uh, and what this is, it is, it's... It's not a show. I'm not exactly certain what yeah, it tell, is. Yeah, tell, use the uh, language you used with me, and we'll end with this. Sure. About the difference between being an entertainment and something being entertaining. Yes. Uh, I, I, you know, people know carnival knowledge, uh, not, and also uh, Play Dead, mostly. I'm referring to Play Dead. And that was a show, and this really isn't. Uh, that was entertainment, and this, though it's entertaining, is not entertainment. And people that saw that show were spectators in the audience, but the people that come to Haunt Quest here at the Soho Playhouse are participants going on a journey with me, a journey I've been on all my life as I've explored darkness, and you're going to explore it with me. And we'll see in this wonderful haunted building a hist- with a very dark history who will come forth from the dead and meet us here in the loft at the Soho Playhouse. Outstanding. Leave us with the story, and we'll wrap with this. Leave us with the story of Buster. There is one of the ghost stories, one of the uh, stories that a number of staff members have told independently here uh, about an entity down in the basement uh, in the, the Huron Club area, which is a lovely bar cabaret space down there. Uh, named Buster. He'd been called that because he has a tendency when he shows up to break things. He knocks uh, glasses off the bar. And his favorite thing is to cause the toilets downstairs to back up. The toilets have been checked out by plumbers. There's nothing wrong with them. There's no reason they should overflow. And yet they do for no reason whatsoever. And it's usually when Brit takes a night off. Buster seems to be fond or afraid of Brit. But when he puts someone else in charge, that's when Buster comes out. So much so that one of the staff members, when Buster is acting up, will put a shot of whiskey on the bar saying, drinks are on the house. And he seems to calm down, seems to like that, which leads people to believe that maybe he was a patron here when that area was a speakeasy back during the 1920s during Prohibition. So the first night, the first preview that we do here uh, of this, um, the, the hunt quest, I bring someone up that is very open and uh, they start having a visions of meeting someone, an apparition comes to them. And we interview this person and say, you know, what is your name? And he says, Robert, and his last name, Anton. And when did you die? 1936. And when, what is your connection with the building? He said, I used to come here. And I said, why did you come here? He said, to have fun. And there was something kind of prankish about this presence and it wasn't coming from the person they're they're being very genuine about what was coming to them what they were hearing and what they were seeing but i was sensing that this robert acts up he was he was being very quirky and i say robert are you the person that the staff here refers to as buster and very quickly he said yes i am (laughs) now what's wild about this is that Brit... Brit is in the room, right? Yeah. Brit almost falls off his chair because Brit was the first one to become aware of this entity before he got the name Buster. And for some reason, 
He's always called him Bob. I mean, that is true. This is 100% true. Brit spent my, uh, originally was my intern almost 30 yeah. years ago and works to me for this day. So he would not make that up. No. So fantastic. So I encourage everybody to come and personally experience Todd at Todd Robbins do his wonderful haunt quest. It's really a wonderful honor to have Todd back in our playhouse, uh, bringing the uh, dormant playhouse back to life. Yes. And perhaps, uh, you have some spirits you want to come investigate here in the loft of the Soho Playhouse. We never know who's going to show up living or dead. Thanks for listening to the Soho Playhouse podcast. I hope that we inspire you to attend a show at our flagship Soho Playhouse in New York City or at our new location in Las Vegas or for that matter, wherever creative theater lives in your town. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend. If you have a question or comment, reach out to us. Our email address is mail at SohoPlayhouse.com. And to find out a lot more about who we are and what we do, go to SohoPlayhouse.com. And remember, as Edward Albee said, people come to Broadway to look. They come off Broadway to listen. Listen.